The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading this morning is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, 
supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Brett, for that scripture reading. I like Brett's voice just has a very soothing quality to it. I don't know what it is. I just could, I was just going to sit there and keep listening, but then I realized I had to get up here and say words. So, um, hey, before we dive into this fascinating text this morning, I want to sort of remind us what it is that we're doing here, um, because I think there's a certain kind of passivity that we can fall into um, in showing up Sunday after Sunday and being in this room together, and it's sort of like this implicit social contract that we make, right? Where I'll show up and preach a halfway decent sermon. You'll show up and listen to hopefully a halfway decent sermon. And it's sort of like a decent college elective, right? Like the, 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 our, our presence here can take on sort of like a classroom quality where it's almost like that learning is the main reason that we're here. And I certainly trust that uh, we learn as we're together. But I want to remind you what we're really here for is to encounter God. Like we're here to make contact with ultimate reality, to think about what is most deeply and really true. All week long, you live in a world that tells you two basic things. One, that you are a biomechanical machine, that everything about you can kind of be reduced to biology and chemistry. And second, that it's up to you to define reality. So, you have to decide what's true. You have to make up your own rules to live by. You have to make sense of the world. And the scriptures tell an entirely different story. So in a sense, when we gather here together, we're, we're here to encounter God. We're here to be reminded of the real story of reality. The scriptures remind us there is a God who made you and who made the world. And that because you're made in the image of God, that means you have a soul. So there's something deeper and truer and more real about you that can't be reduced to just neurons firing in your brain and chemical reactions in your body. And the scriptures remind us that 
This God who made us is on a mission to restore the world, to redeem creation, to bring His light and truth and peace to a world that's fallen into darkness and confusion. And that mission involved God the Creator taking on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. And that mission that began with creation and that found its high point in the incarnation of Jesus, that mission is still ongoing right now. Like what God is up to right now in this moment is bringing his kingdom to Omaha, Nebraska, bringing his truth into your life and mine, bringing his grace into your soul and mine, setting us free from living for ourselves and reorienting us around his kingdom. That's what's happening right now this morning. As we gather together in this place, we can encounter that God through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. And so I just want you to have a sense of the gravity of that, that we're here to encounter God. You're not just here to listen to a sermon. You're here to encounter a God who has revealed himself in acts and in words. And the scriptures are a record of God's acts and God's words in history. The apostle John wrote one account of Jesus' acts and words and we've been looking at it for a number of weeks now, and we come this week to this, this profound story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, one of the most beloved and well-known stories in the Bible. Uh, there are so many angles we could take on this story, and there's so much we could say about this text and from this text. I have four different sermon outlines. I'm only going to preach one of them today. I actually thought of a fifth one in between services. So what that means is for the next five weeks, we could preach only this text and you'd hear five different sermons that were totally different. Um, we could focus on this story as the hinge point in John's gospel. We could think about how this, this story moves us from the teaching of Jesus to the suffering and death of Jesus. That's the place we're at in the storyline. Or we could focus on the raising of Lazarus as the seventh sign that John gives us of Jesus' deity. We could focus on the I am statement that lies at the heart of this passage where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We could focus on the amazing humanity of Jesus that we see in this account as he shows up to Lazarus's grave and we read this incredibly short summary, Jesus wept. And we could focus on how that brings us into the emotional life of Jesus and his real shared humanity. There's a lot we could say and think about in this text, but here's the one question I want us to think about together this morning that I think this text raises quite powerfully. The question is this, what does it mean for Jesus to love you? What does it mean for Jesus to love you. I think that for most of us, our default belief, maybe not expressed, but sort of the, the way we tend to conceive of what it means for someone to love us, including God, is that for, for God to love us is for him to allow things to work out in our lives the way we want them to. We're immersed in a way of thinking about love that essentially says, for you to love me means you 
affirm whatever I kind of want and envision for my life. So every decision I make, you should applaud. Every desire I have, you should affirm. Every opinion I express, you should agree with or at least keep your thoughts to yourself. And I get this thirst we have for deep affirmation. Like it's actually a deep need of the human soul. And many of us have grown up in homes where we weren't affirmed in the ways we most deeply needed. We've experienced all kinds of heartbreak and disappointment. Many of our lives have been marked by various kinds of dysfunction and pain. And so it's very tempting to think that for someone to love me means them affirming what I most deeply want for my life. And so we easily find ourselves thinking, If God really loved us, what that would look like is God allowing our lives to work out kind of the way we want them to work out. And you can see where that gets us, right? In moments when life isn't going the way we wished, or when we're not experiencing the things we hoped for, the question that can pop up in our souls is, does God even love me? If he does, why is this? happening. A few years ago, I sat down with a member of our church who had come to the conclusion that he could no longer affirm the Christian faith. He was ready to abandon belief in Christ. And to his credit, he wanted to talk that through. So we sat and talked, and I just asked him what had brought him to this place. And here's the story he told me. He said, my wife and I have struggled for years with infertility. We desperately want to have children. We know it's a biblical, God-given desire. We've been asking God for it in prayer, and yet God hasn't answered our prayers. And if there is a God, and if he really loves us, why wouldn't he give us what we're asking for that we know is good? Imagine you can resonate with that question, right? As I sat there and heard that question, I was like, I get where that's coming from. Maybe you found yourself asking a similar question in some area of your life. If God really loved me, why wouldn't he allow this to go the way I hope for or want? And that's why I think John 11 has some really profound things to say to us. Because notice, the text tells us explicitly In verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We don't have to wonder, did Jesus love these people? The text tells us right here, Jesus loved these three human beings. They were his dear friends. And yet, in his love, he allows Lazarus to die. He allows Martha and Mary to weep. He allows a funeral and a burial and a week of mourning. So clearly, Jesus' understanding of love seems to be different from our understanding of love. And what I think is interesting is the people in this text ask the question for us. They voice the question I think is on our minds and our hearts when we, when we read this text. In verse 37, they say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
That's the question, right? We know Jesus has supernatural power. He just a few chapters ago opened the eyes of a blind man. Could he not have kept Lazarus from dying? What does it mean then for Jesus to love Lazarus? And what does it mean for Jesus to love you? Let's start with a brief definition of love. To love someone, most simply, is to will their good. If I love you, I want what's best for you, and I want to use my power and agency for your good. Uh, Think about the simplest expression of this. Think about a brand new helpless infant who's not able really to express what she wants or to advocate for herself or to meet her own needs. A caregiver who loves that child is moved to act in the child's best interest, to seek the good of that child, right? So loving parents or guardians clothe her and feed her and soothe her and nurture her and care for her. They use their agency to ensure her good. When we read about heartbreaking cases of child neglect, when we hear of situations where caregivers do not sacrifice for the good of a child, we recognize that intuitively as a failure of love. Because to love someone is to will their good. Therefore, for God to love is for God to will our good. God is love, the book of 1 John tells us, and therefore God, who is the greatest and highest and most perfect being in the universe, always wills what is good. So here's the challenge we have in this text. If God loves his people, if love is to will the good of another person, most of us would not call what happens in this story good. We don't call funerals good. We don't call the loss of a loved one good. We don't call grief and mourning good. So there must be a greater good which supersedes what seems good to us on the surface. If it's true that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, yet Jesus allows Lazarus to die, There must be some greater good Jesus is after, which supersedes our first instinct of what is good in a moment like this. (laughs) What does it mean for Jesus to love you? Apparently, from this story, here's what we know. It doesn't mean Jesus allowing things in your life to always work out the way you want them to. What John is telling us in telling us this story is apparently Jesus is willing to let people he loves die. What are we to do with that? Either Jesus is not good or Jesus is after some greater good in this story. And that's in fact what we're going to see. So let's look together at the text, John 11 Verses 5 and 6, page 843 in the Bible, under your seat. Let's just get our minds in the text. Verse 5, now 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In this verse, the verb loved is in the emphatic position. So what that means is when you read that, think of the word loved as being bolded and underlined in italics. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved them. And here's what he did because he loved them. Nothing. He stayed right where he was. His non-intervention in Lazarus' illness was an expression of his love. His seemingly nonchalant response to this news was an expression of his love. Jesus, laying his head on his pillow for two more nights while Lazarus was drawing his final breaths, was an expression of his love. Verse 7 says, Then, after this, after he stayed two days longer, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So notice what the text sets up for us. Jesus loves these friends. There's no doubt about that. In light, in light of his love, he stays two days longer where he was. And then he starts the journey back to Judea where Lazarus is. So the story goes on and we see in verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. You're not supposed to be surprised by that. That's exactly what you would expect because we already see that Jesus does not seem to be in a hurry. He's taking his sweet time getting back to Bethany and to the household of Lazarus. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice that later on in verse 32, Mary says the exact same thing. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Their immediate vision of the good their immediate sense of what could Jesus bring to this situation, what good could Jesus have brought to bear, is this. Lord, had you been here, Lazarus would not have died. Right? And really, what could be more obvious? All of us looking at this same set of facts, looking at this situation, would say the good here would be for Lazarus not to have died. That's the most common sense way of looking at the facts. What would be good in this situation? Well, the good would be for Lazarus not to have died in the first place. But I want you to notice that's not how Jesus sees the situation. Go back to verse 3. The very beginning of the chapter. Lazarus is ill, verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Notice John's explicit language here. When Jesus heard it, he said. So immediately upon receiving the news, while the messengers who have brought this news are still standing there, Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Jesus, at the very beginning of the story, is telling you what the greatest good is. Before the text goes any further, you as the reader are privileged to know what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks is the greatest good in this situation. What is it? The glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Their greatest good is, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. His greatest good is, this is all for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is telling you, there's a bigger thing I'm doing here. There's a bigger, greater good that I'm pursuing. What does it mean for Jesus to love them? What does it mean for Jesus to love you? It means helping you see and seek the greatest good. Friends, here's what this text reminds us. There's a greater good than your physical well-being. There's a greater good than your temporal happiness. There's a greater good than the life you think you want. Jesus is up to something greater in your life than just giving you the life you want. What Jesus is after is he wants you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love seeing God glorified. Or to say it another way, the most loving thing Jesus can do for any of us is to reshape our loves. To reorient what we love. To change the hierarchy of our loves. Because Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he's out to reshape their loves. I mean, think about this with me. This, this story is a little weird. I, know, I think when we hear this story... Right, the, the powerful part is Lazarus coming out of the tomb. And so we get to that part of the story, we're like, man, that's awesome, end of story. But if you think about it, what's most weird, I think, about this story is they're going to go through all of this again. Sometime in the future, Lazarus is going to die again, which is the worst. Having to die twice sounds terrible. But that's what Lazarus is in for. And the second time he dies, whenever that is, the Bible doesn't tell us, but whenever that is, they're going to go through all this again. They're going to have another funeral. They're going to mourn and weep again. But what's going to be different at that point in time? What's going to be different is what they see and understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of this story is not Lazarus being raised, although that's amazing, the central figure in the story is Jesus and what he is up to in the raising of Lazarus and what he is telling us about himself. The next time Lazarus dies, Mary and Martha and whoever else is in their entourage is going to have a whole different perspective on everything because they will have seen and experienced the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why the center of this story is really found in verses 23 and following. So let's look there. Jesus comes to Bethany. He meets Martha. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the heart and soul of what Jesus is trying to help Martha see. This is the response of faith that he is after. Notice what Jesus is saying here. First of all, he's saying there's a difference between believing in the resurrection and believing in Jesus. See, Martha is a good Jewish monotheist. She believes there will be an afterlife. There will be some sort of resurrection at the end of time. And so when Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, she says, yep, I have good theology, Jesus. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The shift that needs to take place for Martha and for all of us is the shift from trusting in an idea to trusting in a person. Jesus is not satisfied with Martha just knowing in general that there will be some kind of resurrection. He's saying to her, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't want you trusting in a theory. I want you trusting in me. Resurrection is what I bring to the world. Life is found in me. See, Martha believes that Lazarus will be raised, but Jesus wants Martha to believe in the one who is the resurrection. Many of you perhaps believe in the resurrection of the dead. You, you, you grew up saying the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The question is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That he is the resurrection and the life. The hope of Christians is not some vague afterlife. The hope of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ himself is the life, and that he will raise to life again all who belong to him because he has conquered death once and for all. As Jesus says that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The second thing Jesus is saying here is that there's about to be, he wants Martha to see, hey, there's about to be good news for a whole lot more people than just you and your sister. Notice what Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, you still seem to think that the greatest good here is your brother not dying. I'm telling you there's a way bigger story being written right now. This sad moment in your life is going to turn into joy, not just for you, but for all people everywhere, because I'm about to bring hope to everyone who believes in me, not just to you and Mary and Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Why does John put this story here? Why, why does he use it at this place in the book? Well, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is kind of the foil for the entire story John is telling, right? I mean, think about this. It's a resurrection that's going to get Jesus killed. Like him bringing Lazarus back from the dead is, going to what, is what's going to lead to his crucifixion. From this point in the story, as soon as Lazarus walks out of the grave, the Jewish elites in Jerusalem go, okay, this Jesus guy is a problem. We got to do something about this. So it's not with a little bit of irony that John wants you to see. The thing that Jesus is going to die for is bringing a guy back from the dead. 
Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus is about to head into a tomb. Jesus restores Lazarus to life because Jesus himself is about to take Lazarus' place in death so that Lazarus and everyone else who believes in Jesus shall never die. And Lazarus walking out of the tomb is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will accomplish himself on Easter Sunday morning. And it's a picture of how the gospel works. It's a picture of what Jesus has come to do. What does Jesus do in your soul and mine? Well, he does the same thing he did to Lazarus' body. You are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. You don't have any spiritual life in you. Spiritually speaking, you are a corpse. And the good news of grace is that Jesus comes to your dead, lifeless soul and awakens it and brings it to life and gives it new life. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is picturing for us and what John is picturing for us by giving us this story. So let's go back to the question we started with. What does it mean for Jesus to love you? I want you to see that Jesus loving you does not mean everything in your life is going to go the way you want it to go. If we can just put that lie to rest win for today. Win for John's purposes in telling us this story. The fact that things in your life aren't going the way you want does not mean Jesus doesn't love you. In fact, it may turn out to be a way that Jesus is showing his love for you. If we can just put to death the idea that when things in life don't go the way we want, somehow God doesn't love us, this story will have done part of the work that the Holy Spirit inspired it to do. What do you think Mary and Martha treasured most after this moment? Did they treasure having their brother Lazarus back from the dead? Well, of course they did. But I bet they treasured the power of the Lord Jesus Christ even more. I bet their love for Jesus was the thing that grew the most in this moment. I bet their confidence that Jesus will do what he says he will do grew by leaps and bounds. And I bet that mattered way more to them than just having their brother Lazarus back from the dead. Because now they were able to look forward to his future impending death and theirs with a kind of hope they did not have previously. Friends, because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the best thing he could do for them was to reshape their loves. And if Jesus loves you, the best thing he can possibly do for you is to reshape your loves. And do you know how he does that? Painfully. All the problems in your life and mine and your soul and mine really come down to this. We love the wrong things or we love lesser things more. Our loves are not rightly ordered. We don't love God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. And out of our disordered loves come all of the other dysfunction in our lives and in our world. Because God loves you, he wants to reorder and reshape your loves. And so this is what God is doing for his people 
in all of the disappointments and all of the heartaches and all of the little deaths that we experience in this sad world. He's reshaping our lives. He's teaching us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We could say it this way. Real love is not Jesus giving you what you think you want out of life. Real love is Jesus giving you something even better than what you think you want. Real love is Jesus giving you himself. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. Does he give Mary and Martha Lazarus back? Yes, temporarily. But more importantly, he gives them himself as the resurrection and the life. Jesus loves Lazarus so much, he's not just going to raise Lazarus from the grave. He's going to go to the grave in Lazarus' place. You could think of it this way. Jesus is kind of saying to Lazarus, hey, come on out. I'm about to head in there for you. He's going to go conquer the power of death. He's going to rise again victorious so that those who believe in Jesus will never die. And so that the next time Lazarus dies, which is coming, his sisters won't just say, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Instead, they will say, because he believed in Jesus, though he died, Yet shall he live, and us too. Friends, Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And all who believe in him will never die. What does it mean for Jesus to love you? It means he's out to reshape your loves. So that you love the glory of God and the Son of God more than you love all the things of this world. And so that in death, whenever it comes for you, rather than hoping in some vague idea of the afterlife, you can hope in the one who himself is the resurrection and the life. That's what it means for Jesus to love you. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this miracle that you performed, and we thank you for this truth that lies at the heart of it, that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you promised that those who believe in you shall never die. So we thank you that you conquered death on our behalf. And we thank you that you live now to bring the power of your life into our lives. So we give you permission this morning to reshape our loves. God, wherever we love the wrong things, wherever we're chasing the wrong things, wherever our hearts are wrapped around the wrong things, will you do your transformative work of moving us more fully into the love of you? Thank you that this story shows us many, many things about your authority over death and your victory over the grave, but it also shows us the depth of your love for your people. And so this morning, we gather here enveloped in your love, provoked by your love, desiring to be changed by your love. And it's that that we ask for.
for our good and for your glory. Amen.